Hello, and welcome back to East Bay for Everyone Radio. I'm Scott Simmons, and this is a podcast about East Bay for Everyone, an activist organization in the East Bay that is working hard to make it a place for everyone. In this episode, I interview Daryl Owens, who is a housing and transportation activist here in the East Bay. Uh, Daryl is one of my favorite people in EBFE because he knows just so much, and he can just really talk your ear off about whatever he's into. In, the, in this interview, he, he does exactly that. Uh, we talk about urbanism, transit, policing, uh, and of course, Twitter. Uh, I learned a lot from this conversation, and I hope you will too. Enjoy the interview. Okay. Uh, so Daryl Owens, uh, welcome to East Bay for Everyone Radio. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited to have you on here, man. Uh, excited to hear what you want to talk about. And I know you want to talk about, uh, you know, all the things. Um, Okay, so by way of introduction, um, you are, and correct me if I get any of this wrong, um, but you are a housing commissioner for the city of Berkeley. Uh, you are a data and policy analyst at California Yimby. Uh, and you are, I would say, a very big deal on housing Twitter uh, at I Do The Thinking. If, you, if, you, if you're listening to this and you haven't followed Daryl yet on Twitter, uh, pause the podcast, go follow him on Twitter at I Do The Thinking. Um, and you are, of course, also a co-executive at East Bay for Everyone. Um, is that right? Did I miss anything? I mean, you got it about right. The housing commissioner thing I've almost completely forgotten about since it's been shut down for so long. I don't even remember that now. Oh, it has. I didn't even know that. It's like not even the most important thing. I mean, I'm not saying it's not important. Like it, it, it is important. Sure. Mm-hmm. But it's just weird to talk about. Like, yeah, it's that kind of side thing I do where I check on our affordable housing money, uh-huh. which is something uh, Oakland desperately needs. Yeah. Yeah. Oakland has no oversight of its affordable housing money. Like they lose fees. So so what happens is the way it works is in Oakland, the developers, you know, build whatever and then they take development fees and that's supposed to go towards building below market rate housing or affordable housing, subsidized housing, whatever okay. you know term you want to call it. Yeah. There's no oversight commission. So it just goes to the city and it gets lost. So there's tons of fees where people are like, wait, wait, where did these fees go? And Oakland City's like Oops, I don't know. Well, wait, hang I, on. This is this is a tangent already. I love this, but I, I want to I want to back up just a sec. So, so you this is what you do for the city of Berkeley, or one of the things you do, and that role is to to track the money that comes in so that the city can build subsidized affordable housing. Is that correct? Okay, let's just start from the top. Yeah, I'm a housing advisory commissioner for the city of Berkeley, which yeah. means we oversee. The al- First of all, we deal like on a very superficial level with tenant problems um, in households. And we also deal with affordable housing funds and we advise the city council on where the affordable housing fund should go. So, okay. for example, when a developer builds an apartment complex or the city gets a grant or something mm-hmm. – we that money goes into what we call the housing trust fund and that trust fund is overseen by our commission people come to our commission and tell us what they'd like to see that money go towards mm-hmm. almost every single time it's affordable housing projects built by nonprofits so that's the job of the housing commission we oversee uh where the funds go and we advise to the city council which ultimately makes the final decision uh where they should where the funds will be allocated to Cool. And how did you get that position? Is that an elected thing or did you apply or how does that work? Uh, no, I was appointed by Councilmember Drosty, Lori Drosty, District 8 Berkeley, represents Elmwood, Claremont, 
Uh, yeah, awesome. a couple of years ago, actually. I've been on air for a while now. And why is it? And you mentioned that it's that it's kind of on hold. Is it is it just because of the pandemic? It's because of COVID. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. It's not. It's not considered like I don't know why it's not really considered an essential commission, but it's not considered as essential as the like basic ones that because it's not a commission that like developers have to go through. Mm. So, it's just a commission that like we allocate the money. Is there so? Is there just a pile of money somewhere in that trust fund that isn't going anywhere because the commission isn't meeting right now? Uh, doubt it. Uh, I mean, how often does affordable housing get built, right? Like, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, right. you know, there are tenant, there are tenant, um, you know, things that could be happening, uh, but I get, I feel like most of that goes to the rent board, anyways. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that there shouldn't be any housing advisory commission running right now. It's just that, at least from the perspective of the city, it's not as important as like the zoning adjustments board or the planning commission. So right now, it's mostly on hold. Oh, cool. See, I knew I would learn so much talking to you, man. That's so cool. And so you're saying yeah, we're going Oakland... to get started. We're going to get super wonky today. Let's get into it. So and you so you're saying Oakland, Oakland does not have that sort of no. commission. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. What do we do? So I'm in Oakland, so I don't even know. But what, what do we do over here? So here's what you guys do in Oakland. Or here's what we did when I used to live in Oakland. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what you do is you get developer fees and it goes to the city, and the city has to earmark it for certain projects. Um, except that there's no oversight of this, so this is all within the hands of staff and the council. The problem is, is that there's been numerous inquiries in terms of where fees are going for which projects, and city staff has more or less said, we don't know where these fees went. Um, I, they may be going into the general fund, I'm not totally sure, but there's no real tracking. So there's kind of this like, rolling story at least it's kind of been a story in like the east bay times for a while which is that oakland has a bunch of unaccountable fees that it doesn't really know where it is and know what to do with it's like when the pentagon like does says to the uh uh uh, house of representatives oh yeah we just have a bunch of money we lost uh Uh, we don't know where these things are oakland's Uh kind of the same thing with affordable housing i don't know i don't know if it's super bad there might just be a couple of fees they lost but there's been no real tracking of the affordable housing fees in Oakland, which kind of makes sense if you understand its history. Interesting. Um, and I say that because, well, yeah. sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, it's it's not like Oakland doesn't put money towards affordable housing, right? Like we, yeah, we know, it doesn't. It's just, yeah. it, it doesn't. It just, it doesn't keep track of all the money. So a lot of the money that does come from developer fees gets lost in other projects. And that's kind of the contentious issue. The reason why Oakland's so bad on this is because for years, like nobody built anything in Oakland anyways. So there wasn't really much of a need to have oversights of development fees. Um, but now, now it's like, you know, Oakland, you're kind of a big boy now. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're building housing, uh, mainly starting in like 2017. So yeah. time to make a housing commission that oversees where these fees are going. Yeah. So like, it's like the city just didn't have like the muscles to, to, to execute that kind of activity because it just wasn't happening often enough to matter. I mean, yeah. How many, mm. how many market rate housing projects got built in Oakland prior to 2017? Like, right. I could probably yeah. count one on, I could probably count them all on one hand. Like it's just not a thing. Yeah. And, and it's all course, around here. It's all uptown. That's kind of what's happening, but now it's happening. So, you know, maybe we need that. Well, uh, yeah, of course you definitely yeah. need that. That's cool, man. Okay. Um, and then, of course, I'm the co-executive of East Bay for Everyone, and we should all know what that is. That's an organization that fights for housing and transit activism. Um, we want more housing and more public transportation, uh, more zero-emission transportation options. We want to have a sustainable, livable, equitable city. That's what we fight to do. 
I love it. Thank you. I appreciate the plug. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Um, so, all right. Uh, so, so while I was doing my research to, to kind of get ready for our, our interview, um, I found something that I uh, uh, that I thought was interesting that I wanted to talk to you about that leads into something that leads into kind of a bigger conversation that I think might be interesting. Um, so you um, you have been in the news a bunch for the stuff that you do. Um, yeah, I'm about to be in the news tomorrow too. Are you really? Can I? Yeah. What's that going to be about? AC Transit meltdown. Are you following this at all? You were with is me this, in the car. This is the <laughs> thing about the, the bus being shut down. Yeah, the bus is completely shut down today. And, and not all of the entire AC Transit district, but much yeah. of Berkeley and North Oakland and El Cerrito, down. Whole thing, down. Let's, I, let's it's get crazy. In, let's talk about that. Let's get into the weeds on that before we get to my other thing. What's So uh, for somebody that doesn't know, for somebody that never takes the bus, uh, what the heck happened and why does it matter? So AC Transit, first of all, I founded an organization that is completely separate from this organization. It's not part of East Bay for Everyone. It has nothing to do with East Bay for Everyone. Um, but we created a uh, transit riders union, the East Bay Transit Riders Union, in mm -hmm. June or sorry, July, uh, largely in response to we wanted to do it for a while because transit advocacy in the East Bay is terrible. It's god awful. This this region is dominated by cars. It's dominated by the fossil fuel industry. It's god awful. And we said for a long time, look, we got to make a bus riders union and not 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 any other kind of union. It had to be focused primarily on bus riders because, you know, BART has tons of advocates. Everyone's mm -hmm. always talking about BART. And, you know, it was during the George Floyd protests where, I mean, even before getting to that, for the longest time, AC Transit would just cut buses. Buses would be missing. You'd have short buses. You had lines being cut constantly, redrawn constantly, riders being left behind, and just, just no advocacy. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd always comment in San Francisco when they cut a Muni line, you know, every news channel's on it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the reporters told me, well, that's because there's a there's a political transit infrastructure for public transit riders in place in San Francisco. It doesn't really exist in the East Bay. Mm -hmm. There's been manifestations and attempts, but there's no one to go to. Right. There's yeah. no one you go to when you say, hey, I got problems as an AC transit rider. Who do you go to? Yeah. You know? um, so the problem is, you know, we had to make a bus riders union and we did specifically in reaction to what happened with the George Floyd protests. I was at the George Floyd protests, um, the one that was at Oakland Tech. We, we went mm -hmm. down to downtown Oakland. Yeah. The curfew yeah, was yeah. not only unethical, but it was pathetic how AC Transit went along with the curfew. And so that's our public transit system, right? That's, that's our necessity. And when they said they were going to announce a curfew at 8 p.m., AC Transit said, okay, we're going to stop picking up riders at 7.30 or 7.45 p.m. And as I'm on my way home from the protest, tons of service workers, retail workers are getting out of work and they're looking for their buses and they're not coming or they're not picking them up. And it's because the silly um, agency has the curfew for the transit system 15 minutes beforehand. Like, and, and it shouldn't have a curfew at all. Public transit is public transit. We need that. You know, we need to act, we need to treat public transit like it's a road. Imagine if like we just turned off and on a road, right? Right. That's right. public transit. You don't cut it like it's like it's like it's a taxi or some private car. Well, no, cars get way more respect than public transit does. Um, but you know, they cut it and I'm like, you know, this is the last straw. You know, seeing people stuck out there. And I said, okay, it's time to make a transit riders union. And so we did. 
And uh, it's evidently needed because they're talking about cutting 30% of AC Transit's lines for the next incoming year. And so, of course, you know, things haven't been doing good for AC Transit. Uh, you know, we, we've been talking mostly about the cuts for a while. And now today, actually really started more like two days ago, there was a whole bunch of bus cuts. Um, and is know, this... They, they, yeah. They, you know... And then uh, they, they cut so many lines. They cut almost – I live in North Berkeley, well, uh-huh. the North Bray District specifically. And I have maybe four bus lines that go near me, six if you count the ones in the hills kind of. They cut all three of them. There's only one line left, and it was the 18. And I was like, okay. And they didn't tell anyone. So they so hella people were stranded. And yeah. it's disproportionately black and brown people who ride AC Transit. If you look at the demographics, right. it's majority black yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and I'm, and you're seeing all these people sitting at the bus stop, like, where's my bus? Where's my bus? And I'm walking, I, I got my groceries. I'm ready to go back home and there's no bus coming. I mm-hmm. check. I'm like, you look at the signs there, you know, there should be like some kind of service notice information. They'll usually put that on the signs. Nothing, nothing. I'm checking my app. I'm thinking, okay, well, it's not saying any buses are coming, but that must be because maybe there's some kind of Wi-Fi issue or something. No, I check on AC transits in-house arrival website nothing it says canceled can i'm like canceled how do you cancel public transit like what what options do i have if you cancel public transit the hell is that about so then i found out from social media ac transit cut hella lines like just said from thursday till monday we're just cutting all the lines and they did it on twitter wow do you you think ac transit's average riders are on twitter right and you're pretty plugged in individual like you checked the app you checked the website and then you checked yeah. twitter and then you found it i, I didn't even know right and, and, and they, they they gave it to like this exclusive text messaging email app that you have to sign up for this complicated form this oh. guy named Juan, good friend of mine is like look at how complicated this thing is just to get ac transit personal information you know when they announced the curfew because they're looking out for drivers the county they put that on every phone Hell, when Uber and Lyft said they were going to shut down, I got a text message. Yeah, Uber and Lyft is private for profit public uh, private for profit transit. Yeah, that's not that's, that's not public transportation. I don't give a I don't give a damn about Uber and Lyft. I don't use uh-huh. that. But they but they gave everyone a text message. Hey, Uber and Lyft shutting down. Corp, corporate America shutting down your uh, your gig economy transit. Yeah. Okay. AC that's Transit murks so many lines in the East Bay. Uh, we're not going to tell anyone. Well, we'll tell like a group of people that signed up and we don't really care. And then, of course, it got so much backlash, I had to prod the uh, news agencies into covering it. Berkeley side, thankfully, covered it. Stellar journalists who covered it, too. And uh, That's cool. it got even That's worse. Yeah, it, it was cool. And then the next day came. That was on Friday. Oh, okay. The cut started on Thursday. We got the report out on Berkeley side on Friday. Okay. And then Saturday hits. And it gets even worse. Not only did they cut all the lines... They then cut more lines and are crucial, like our main lines, right? The mm-hmm. 51B, that's College Avenue and University Avenue. You know, they cut the 18 mm-hmm. for like uh, a couple hours. I don't know if it's up and running now. There's like one driver on the entire route, but for a whole period, it completely cut. The 51B is so crucial. That's a lot of black residents in West Berkeley. That's a lot of college students in Southside District. That's a lot of residents in Elmwood and Rockridge. The 18 is our crucial line between Solano Avenue and Berkeley, all the way down MLK Junior Way and mm-hmm. um, uh, a Shattuck Avenue, all the way to Lake Merritt via Longfellow District. 
North Oakland, just cut them off. And I'm not blaming this on the drivers. Don't get me wrong. This oh, is right, the yeah. responsibility. Everyone should know that. The driver is my best friend. Yeah. The, the blame here falls on the transit agency that used such piss poor communication. Nobody even knew about it. And so I assume this is the, the, the service is being cut because of the pandemic and ridership is low and funding is tight. I mean, that's my best guess. Is that right? Well, that's the long time. That's, that's the long that, that's next year. That's what oh. the 30s. That's what the 30 percent cuts are about. They're going to cut it because of low ridership. Um, they have already cut weekend service on some lines because of low ridership. That's real. But these specific cuts were actually this. This hasn't been confirmed, so don't get me wrong. Okay. Um, but w- you know, our friends at the ATU have been telling us. Well, the actual problem is the ATU is the drivers' union. Okay, thanks. They've yeah, been telling nice. us. You know. Oh, and by the way, let's just get this out the way ahead of the time. As a policy uh-huh. wonk, as a data analyst, I'm going to be spewing so many like acronyms and stuff. <laughs> I, I, we, we speak in acronyms, okay? So when you I hear will an try acronym, to get clarification you know, every time, I just, promise. Just, just stop me. Say, hey, 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 Daryl, what's that acronym mean? I will. Okay, I appreciate that. And some acronyms, I don't even know. I just say it. Uh, yeah. But, but um, yeah, so at the ATU, they told us, the driver's union, they said, um, look, there's a lot of the, 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 the testing positive among bus operators has been going up. And I'm like, oh, right. damn. And so they're shutting down a division that mostly services, um, you know, downtown Oakland, Lake area, all the way up to El Cerrito through Berkeley mm-hmm. and North Oakland. And that's kind of why there was such a shortage of bus drivers. And I'm like, wow. Well, first of all, that's that's emblematic of two problems there. Number one, we can't keep bus drivers because AC Transit isn't competitive with other transit agencies. We got to fix that. Right. Hmm. We got to protect our bus drivers, make sure they have good jobs. And it has to be an appealing agency to work for. Prop 15 might do something with that. I don't want to get too much in the weeds right now. We can we can deal with that later. But Prop 15, rolling back the tax breaks for big corporations that are, are commercial businesses, some commercial businesses that are big like Chevron and, and uh, Richmond yeah. have been paying 1979 era tax assessments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can definitely get in that's, the weeds of that, but no, we're, we're yeah, definitely... Yeah. That's, we're, but that's responsible for underfunding public transportation yeah. and AC Transit because it is so property tax reliant. I hear you. And so yeah. we have so yeah. many businesses that are just like, I'm not going to do anything. Now, don't get me wrong. Prop 15 doesn't do anything on residential property, so don't don't worry. But for commercial, <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. Right. And then two, and then two, the bigger problem is that, you know, we're not keeping our drivers safe. Right. And, and we need to work on that and we need to make sure that we can grow the driver base and not have them dependent on a small group of drivers who are going out there and putting their lives on the line for us. It's crucial that we protect our drivers. You know, so this is this is this is the big problem here going on right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, sorry, go ahead. I'm just kind of in a ranting mood because I was literally doing this all day today. No, I'm loving it, man. And, and like, you know, first and foremost, like, thank you for all that you do, man. Like this, this is. Um, this is the kind of thing that I, that I really want people to see on this podcast. Like this is like, this is the way that you do your activism. You know, like when I see you doing your thing, um, this is, this is how you do it, right? You gather data, you call attention to things that you think are wrong. Um, you investigate what's going on, you get the details and you bring it, uh, you bring it to people in a way that sort of highlights, uh, something that needs to be fixed, you know? And, and this is like a perfect example, I think of the kind of stuff that you do that I really admire you for, man. Um, yeah, so I think this this is great. So so okay, two things. First, I would be remiss if I did not mention our good friend Victoria Fierce, who is running for the AC Transit at large seat. Um, she's trying to get on there and change the way that AC trans, Transit works. 
uh, uh, hopefully addressing a lot of things that we're talking about right now. Uh, I would feel terrible if I didn't if I didn't plug her for that. So uh, that's out there. Um, the, the, th the second thing that I wanted to ask or to kind of to kind of continue on this, like, like, how does this work for you w when you see this, when you do this research, when you find out what's going on? Um, what do you what do you do with it? Like, how do you do you just tweet it? Are there people that you reach out to? Like, what's the like once you have the info, once you've identified the problem, what's the next stage for you as an activist? You know, like, I mean, how does that work for you? What, yeah. what I normally do is I mean, tweeting is great. Yeah, because that, that gets ordinary people involved. Um, don't discount the power of social media. It does matter. But it's also very demographically constrained. You're talking about people that have the ability to buy smartphones and spend all their time on Twitter. It's not a lot of people. Yeah. But you're you're going to catch time, certain people on social media. Yeah. You, you get certain people, right? You get yeah. generally more affluent people, generally whiter people. Yeah. Um, and so the, the, the in real life action, it's just neighborhood organizing. I go to neighbors. I go to friends. I go to family. I talk to people. I go to meetings. I get people's numbers after the meetings. I send out text messages. I send out notifications via an email list. There's a lot of ways you got to get people collected right now. Um, but yeah, it's not as it's not as simple as just tweeting. No way. Though tweeting does help. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think I would be as good of an organizer if it wasn't for my Twitter account. Of course not, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so how, so yeah, you're talking about like doing the real work of like meeting people face to face. And I agree. I think that's, I mean, for me, I find that's one of the best ways to be um, not only persuasive really, but just like connected. I feel like when you're talking to somebody face to face about some of these issues that really matter, um, it just lands better when you're kind of in the same room, able to see each other. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? Yeah. I hear what you're saying. I, I mean, I mean, let's get real here though. I mean, you can have in-person meetings and it's some of the most unproductive stuff I've ever seen. True. But Zoom, I mean, it makes it 10 times worse. Sometimes yeah. we have Zoom meetings just for the point of having Zoom meetings. I'm sitting there like, what are we doing? And then everyone <laughs> has this weird etiquette thing where they're like, you have to have your camera on. And I'm like, I, I mean, my hair is messed up. I got bed hair. No one looks like they want to be here. And it's like, <laughs> it's bad enough that you're making me on the Zoom meeting, come on the Zoom meeting right now. You're going to make me turn on my camera and give a poker face like stare like, yeah. I'm looking, doing nothing else. It's, it's, it's crazy. I don't know how much we can take this. Yeah, honestly, I do a lot of Zoom calls for work. Um, and don't get me wrong, I, I love my job. I'm lucky to have it. But like, yeah, I definitely get that like Zoom call fatigue. Yeah. No, no, it's I, I was doing Zoom prior to the whole uh, pandemic. I would do Zoom all the time with uh, other software engineers and whatnot. And, mm -hmm. you know, now I hate it. Yeah. It was a chore back then, to be honest. I mean, because you don't want to be with these people. You're like, hey, <laughs> come on, let's just do this. And then now it's like, okay, Zoom call one done, Zoom call three next, Zoom call five later. It's like you can't. It's a you lot. You can't do all that. Yeah. Well, so okay, so you, but so but you're talking about kind of how um, how Twitter is useful to you in your activism, but also how meeting people at community meetings and your friends and your family in the real world. That's that that's a that's a big part of it as well. How of course. And I think the big question here is kind of obvious, but I want to hear the answer. Um, like, how is how has coronavirus affected that? You know, like now that we can't sort of meet in public spaces, um, how are you adapting to that, or how are you seeing that change your activism? Uh, for the worse, yeah. To be honest, for the worse. Um, you know, I thought this was really funny when the AC transit cuts first got talked about. The thirty percent cut. A lot of the AC transit meetings were switched to, I believe, Zoom. Uh, well, I don't know why I'm saying I believe. I know Zoom. Uh, I don't really remember if they were always on Zoom. I think we did a lot of in-person meetings. 
And so the AC Transit Board of Directors meetings were on Zoom. We did tons of outreach for the Transit Rider Union, mainly through the internet. And what we discovered was that on the meeting call to talk about all the lines that were being cut and all the opposition to the cuts, um, all the people, all the bus riders who were calling in to oppose the service cuts were from like Kensington and North Berkeley. And I'm the whole time I'm listening and I'm like, I think there's more people on this call from Kensington and North Berkeley than I've ever seen on a bus in Kensington or North Berkeley. That is crazy. And it shows how demographically skewed that Zoom meeting was. You know, lower income people, black and brown folks were not on the call for the most right. part at right. the board of directors meeting. It was mainly just like, uh, and, and they're crucial transit riders too, but it was mainly like a lot of white folks who live um, in the nicer parts of town. Yeah. And I was like, uh, man, the outreach has been kind of screwed. Right. If that's I mean, again, I, I didn't even know that many Kensington bus riders existed until that call. <laughs> right. I mean, so that's a, that's a problem. That's yeah, made yeah. it hard for us to do a lot of outreach because a lot of these communities are at risk. They don't want to go outside. Seniors are worried about meeting up. Yeah. They don't know how to navigate a lot of this technology, the Zoom tech and all this stuff. And, you know, it's a problem. So it, it's not made life easier at all. It's, it's definitely changed things for the worse. Yeah, uh, it would be one. You know, I'm not against the concept of more work at from home. I like work from home. Yeah, I think a lot of office work is unnecessary for the most part. That's like my personal opinion. I think that you know a lot of in person meetings were absolutely arbitrary and completely pointless. I hated going to school lectures. You want to <laughs> go home? We can do this on a Zoom meeting. But at the same time, it's different when I go home. I don't have the space for. I don't have an office space for concentration. I'm doing this in my living room. Right. It's hard because I kind of sleep in my living room too. So you're right next to your bed. A lot of people are doing this from their bedrooms. Yeah. It's hard because you can't go outside. It's one, you know, I live where I do because I live in a really amenities rich neighborhood, mm -hmm. tons of restaurants, tons of parks. Now I have to do all that while wearing a mask. I can't even go to the restaurants. Yeah. And I'm not against, you know, shelter in place. I think we should have done it much earlier. I think we should have done it much um, harder too. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, look, you know, it's, it's, it's getting to the point where I'm starting to question I'm living in this box and I can't even enjoy the amenities in my area. I can't even keep my psychological positivity up. Right. It's, it's hard to keep this kind of stuff going. Yeah. That's uh, real. Under these conditions. And, and the truth is, is that everyone is now desperate to double down. Now it's two, three times as many meetings as I would normally have in real life. Cause everyone's like, we got to keep everyone's focus. We got to keep everyone attentive. Let's have another meeting. And I'm like, calm down. Cause everyone's signing on to these meetings. They don't want to have, we don't need to have a, a weekly meeting or a daily meeting. It's not necessary. Right? right. We don't need to do all that. You chill out, you know, maybe make it week bi-weekly or monthly. Uh-huh. Wait, so you're down. saying like in the professional world you see that happening or you feel like that's happening in like the activist world? Uh, oh, both. It's oh, both really? worlds. Right. Yeah. Um, too, too much too much Zoom overload. Yeah. Uh, Got to give people space. Got to give people time. You know, now that we're working from home, everyone's desperate to like fill in the gap that would ordinarily be given to commute time, right? So now that you're not driving, everyone's like, well, you got extra time. No, part of that is psychological. It's monotonous to sit and stare at my MacBook camera all day long. I can't do it. Right. So chill out and, you know, take it easy. Do you think, do you think a, a, a part of that, like, like a part of that pressure to have people on more and more and even, even like for social stuff, right? My friends are kind of like, um, 
you know, hey, let's have a Zoom call to like hang out. And like, because that's how we can hang out now, right? Um, but do you think some of that comes from just like people reaching out and hoping for, or, you know, working towards having connection, right? Because now that we can't hang out in the real world, it's kind of like, well, Zoom is what we have. So, you know, I want to reach out to my friends and say, hey, let's hang sometime and do a Zoom because like, I don't want to lose touch with these people, you know? Maybe you just have different friends than mine, but none of my friends <laughs> will offer to do Zoom calls. None of them. <laughs> I, and I would reject it anyways. What the hell? Normally, I meet up with my friends in the park and we just social distance. I'm not doing a Zoom call. Dude, I don't even want to look at Zoom. I don't want to hear Zoom. Okay? <laughs> that, that, it's really stressful. I'm not doing a Zoom call. I think um, your approach sounds healthy, man. I got to tell you, I think that sounds pretty good. Yeah, get the hell outside and 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 go distance. Don't do not do these Zoom calls all day in this like Google, this Google like, yeah. Know, Stop. Just, just, you know, can't live your life looking at a screen all day. It's bad enough. People already had bad mental health from that. Look, when you're on Twitter, you know you see a lot of bad mental health every day. Let's yeah. just get real. This is exactly why a lot, I'm not a lot on of, Twitter. A lot of, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're good, dude. My mental health has been screwed. I mean, I'm not, I'm not terrible. I can actually handle it pretty well. But like, I look on people on here sometimes, and I go, "You are insane, and you need to get the hell off this platform." <laughs> all they do is live their world in this like narrow, this narrow forum. And they're like, you need to meet real people and you need to realize what you do is irrational. You need to get help. You need to get off. And so it's hard. You know, it's so hard now because work and school and and, and, and even play, by your yeah. definition, is all just a matter of clicking a different tab on your browser. Yeah. Yeah. I hear Zoom that. Tab, now it's a Twitter tab. Now it's the work tab. And people yeah. don't even get up nowadays. And it, it okay. can't. You can't. Okay, so I, speaking of speaking of Twitter and how you're good at Twitter, I want I want to kind of pivot into one of these things that I wanted to talk about. So um, you got uh, you got kind of a shout out on this Crooked Media podcast hosted by Deray McKesson called Pod Save the People. Uh, it's a cool podcast, a podcast that I like. You and and they they uh, were calling you out, and you got covered in a bunch of uh, a bunch of local. Uh, wait, wait, hold on. I'm not trying to interrupt you. No, no, I'm no. just looking. I'm just looking at my uh, recording thing. Yeah. Are you sure my sound is good? Your sound is good. Yeah, you sound great. But do you do you see like how your voice things, your voice lines are so much higher than mine's? Uh, they look pretty similar to me, actually. Oh. Um, and the beauty of this is that actually uh, what they can do is they can crank up the volume on just your audio if we need to. Um, okay. Like, no, no. I just want to. I just want to make sure it's coming in good. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, you're talking about Pod Save America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so okay, yeah. So. Uh, speaking, speaking of, of you being good at Twitter, um, I, I, I thought this was kind of cool. Uh, you got a shout out on a crooked media podcast called positive, the people, uh, hosted by Dorema McKesson. It's a podcast that I like. Um, and you, you did some research. You did exactly what we were just talking about. You did some research. You figured out what was going on. Um, you pulled up some info from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and you found some, some like huge number of traffic stops, a huge number of, of, I'm sorry, a huge number of interactions with police. Um, we're just traffic stops where like you really don't need, uh, you know, an armed uh, uh, law enforcement officer to handle what's going on there. Um, and that and that tweet actually like threw a bunch of stuff. But that that became a law in Berkeley. Right. Um, uh, uh, so I don't know. I, I, I thought that was really cool. I just wanted to call it out and see, like, ask you, like, what that experience was like or like. Um, was it the same thing? Like, is, is it the same thing where you like see something that you, that you think is wrong? You do the work on it. You, you, you do the thinking as you say. Um, and like you put out some information, um, and then sort of, and then how do you kind of like, or I, I, I guess I should ask, did you push that or did you just like put that onto Twitter and like see what would happen? Or like, what, what was that like? How did that go? 
Oh, that time was hectic. It still actually is pretty hectic, but it's it's not so glamorous anymore. Um, okay. Look, I was. Do you want to? Let's just start from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're an, if you're a normie, this might. Oh, I shouldn't say that term. That's all loaded. If you're a normal <laughs> person, uh, you know, you might want to take a break for a minute. On Twitter, we have something called urbanist Twitter or housing Twitter or transit Twitter, whatever you want to call it. Uh-huh. And it's people who talk about like just the structure of cities all day. And I know that sounds really boring, but it's not. It is crazy. It is drama filled. Um, people hurl insults at each other. People hate each other. Uh, <laughs> it gets heated. It, oh, it's always heated. It's never cool. Um, and there was a big argument for a long time on Twitter that the urbanist agenda, which is basically zero emission public transportation or zero emission transportation, mm-hmm. low emission public transportation, the elimination of private automobiles, dense housing near transit corridors, basically a sustainable green city mm-hmm. was uh, bad or unbecoming or unrealistic or just planner. Um, they always call it, you know, planner Sim City, and that, um, you know, people's lived experiences are different and, and, and whatever. And, and this encompasses everything. Everyone finds a way to drag every part of life into urbanist Twitter. And in part, that's reasonable because living in a city is part of life, mm-hmm, right? Sure. So we yeah. always talk about how things work, transportation, housing. Policing has been a big, a bit has been a big topic for a long time. In part because a lot of the people who call themselves urbanists haven't really been big on police. Mm-hmm. I'll concede that. That's absolutely true. Um, you know, they haven't really cared. Matter of fact, you can probably go back to 2016, 2017, and you can find a lot of people who, you know, their solutions to getting cars out of the bike lane, which is a real problem because we need safer streets for bikes. If you want to get, if you want to reduce carbon emissions, you got to, it's the cars, it's the cars, it's the cars. In yeah. Berkeley, 66% of our emissions come from private automobiles. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or 60 to 66 percent. If you want to get serious about emissions, it's the cars. You got to get people off of cars, onto public transportation, got to get people onto bikes, e-bikes, right? Because, you know, Americans tend to be very lazy. They don't want to work out. E-bikes. That's crucial. We have a lot of ways we need to address this problem. But policing has always been a difficult one because for the longest time, a lot of the solutions to our problems in the urban spaces has been police. And I'm not saying this was pushed by urbanists and urban activists like me. Mm-hmm. Um, I identify as an urbanist, by the way. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean we all think the same, but uh, people would probably call me like a left-wing urbanist or whatnot. Um, but, you know, a lot of the times, you know, the solution to bike lanes for a lot of people for, for many years now was, well, just try to get the police to solve the problem. Oh, I see. And, okay. you know, the solution to traffic law in the United States for decades has been just try to get the police to solve the problem, get more cops. I used to live in East Oakland and I was uh, born and raised over on 54. And the solution to the problems there was how do you deal with speeding on Foothill Boulevard? Well, get a speed cop, you know, mm-hmm. how do you deal with speeding elsewhere? Uh, do speed bumps, erect a stupid drive like my kids live here sign, um, <laughs> all this dumb stuff that doesn't do anything. But a lot of it involved cops. Right, right, right. And there was a specific argument. I'm not going to name the person because I, I don't want to make it imply that I'm doing this vindictively. This was just kind of the inspiration for it. There was a specific argument that expanding public transportation by eliminating private cars, which means doing things like what they did on International Boulevard, which is dedicating entire streets to public transportation, um, bus rapid transit, mm-hmm. doing things like this was bad because policing in public transit spaces 
exists and is bad. Of course, I know that. Oscar Grant. Yeah. Um, you know, he was killed uh, for being black on BART yeah. on, New Year's, on New Year's Day. Yeah. You know, I, I, as a black man, you know, back then when that happened in 09, I was actually in middle school when that happened. Um, but I remember it was such a big deal. It changed my life. I met the family themselves. I met the um, uncle. You know, we brought him to Berkeley High School. Uh, and, and you know, policing on public transportation spaces has always been a problem. And, and I'm not pretending like it hasn't been. Mm-hmm. But to say that to shift much of the country onto public transportation implies that we're going to put black and brown bodies in police spaces. Or actually... This specifically, now not that I just remember, because I haven't really thought about this for a long time. Okay. A lot of this originated with the Slow Streets program in Oakland. So when Oakland rolled out the Slow Streets program, which uh-huh. was this idea that a lot of neighborhood streets should be used by kids and families and people and not just be throughways for, car, for cars. Right. Um, there was a lot of people all over the country who had opinions about this program. It's really not that crazy because Berkeley's traffic diverter program from the 1970s is more or less the same thing. Have you ever driven through Berkeley? You've seen those big white traffic barriers, those like yeah. concrete barriers on certain streets? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of principally the same thing, um, which is that you know you want to keep out outside traffic and let neighborhoods enjoy the street. Yeah. And um, it was actually a black planner, um, Warren Logan, who works for Oakland, who kind of thought up this idea of just removing cars from streets. And the program uh, was a success in North Oakland, which is a little denser, um, much more multifamily housing, closer together, and doesn't yeah. work, and, and has far less of a car culture. Yeah. Um, and it didn't work as well in East Oakland. It wasn't like horrible or bad. It just didn't work. Like drivers drove through the little uh, signs they erected, and nobody cared. Yeah. Um, if you went on next door, all the complaints from East Oaklanders was that this thing was completely pointless. Uh, it was just a waste of time. And so, you know, the East Oakland uh, community nonprofit said, eh, actually, we would prefer just safer crosswalks instead, right? Okay, okay fine. Yeah. Um, but it was a hit in North Oakland. Um, I don't know about West Oakland, but it seems to have been going fine there. And everyone across the country wanted to give their opinions about the Slow Streets program. And there was a lot of complaints that like this was increasing like by a lot of what I like to call left wing anti-urbanists or urbanist skeptics who tend to rationalize what, in my opinion, what they like to do a lot is they like to rationalize. Not all of them are bad. A lot of them offer good critiques. A lot of them were right that urbanism hasn't focused enough on policing. That's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them are also just nuts. And a lot of them are just crazy and will say things like, well, public transportation and streets for people, not for cars, is actually expanded policing because jaywalking laws and there's these are police spaces. And here's an example of a black kid somewhere sometime who got um, arrested while on his bike. And, you know, this is why we need to allow the domination of cars in our cities to continue. Wait, hang on. And I'm sitting there... Can I just real quick? I just want to understand. Uh, yeah, understand go ahead their, because this is this is this is such crazy stuff that like it's. I want to yeah. You're gonna stop and ask questions. I want to make sure I'm keeping up here. So so there uh, the um, uh, uh, urban skeptic left. If I'm getting that right, um, that's right. And we're when we're generalizing here, this isn't any one person, but there there, there was there is an opinion out there. That yeah, it's 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 a it's a uh, it's a field of thought. Okay, yeah. So then in this field of thought. Of thought. The idea is that um, people are are safer from police in their cars because moving to yeah. transit and biking is a more policed space. 
Uh, yeah, basically, it was really okay. weird. But like, they're making the argument. They were making the argument that like people walking on the streets are bad because of policing and profiling, and that black and brown kids wouldn't feel safe on bike lanes because they can be policed. Black and brown people wouldn't feel safe walking on open streets because they would be targets for police. And I'm sitting there going, uh, "The hell are you talking about?" Yeah. So, so I said, "Okay, well, let's look into the data." Um, I went to, I was trying to find out like how do police and people interact in the United States. And so some way or another, I don't really remember how I came across uh, a department of justice, um, bureau of justice statistics, uh-huh. uh, survey, which is a great survey they do that is conducted every five years. So we should be due for another one soon, but it hasn't come out yet. Um, that discusses like what are the interactions between civilians and police? How often do civilians and police see each other? Um, how frequently and where? And it was great data. And one of the things I found immediately, I actually have it up right now, is that 21.1% of people over the age of 16 um, interact with the police in a year. It's a, it's a 12-month survey. Okay. So they, they analyze this data for a year. And again, this data is released every five years. Um, it's a, a 21.1% of all people over the age of 16 years old, um, or 16 years old themselves Uh interact with the police of that 21% or not of that 21%, um, 10% of all people, Uh um, are contacted by the police or police initiate the contact 3.1% of that, uh, of people who interact with the police is due to a traffic accident, obviously car crashes. Okay. And 10.7% of uh, police interactions with people are resident initiated. That means they call 911 or hail a police officer or whatever. Of the um, And then they would break down um, a lot of the stats of the police initiated contact. 8.6% of all people in the United States um, were stopped at a traffic stop by a cop um, as a driver. And then 2.4% were stopped as a passenger. So if you add that 8.6% plus 2.4% together, and uh-huh. then you divide it by the 21.1%, um, roughly 52% of all police interactions in the United States is due to a police pulling you over for a traffic stop. Yeah, that's a lot. And then, yeah. And then if you add in traffic accidents, which is very important, um, people who are in car collisions, oftentimes the police come. Yeah, that number gets into the 60s, around 67 percent, I believe, of all people um, who are interacting with the police officer or interacting with the police officer due to a uh, car-related incident. I get or it. Or traffic stop. So you're and saying, so, yeah, sorry. So no, go ahead. I was going to say, so so you're doing all this research. You were digging into this because there was this sort of sort of rift in uh, urbanist, anti-urbanist uh, Twitter, kind of. And you just you just went in and found that found the numbers and went digging on it. And you found that, like, actually a very large number of people in cars uh, end up interacting with the police in one way or another. Either it's a traffic stop or like a, a collision kind of thing. Right. I mean, it's so big. It gets its own category. Hmm. Like, you know, bike lanes and public transit don't have their own um, cop category. I'm actually not even sure where that is on here. I think that might be street stop or arrested in other. Uh, but, you know, and some of that right. might be resident initiated um, block rock, uh, block watch. But, sure. yeah, like and I'm not saying this to like dunk on anti-urbanists. Again, a lot of them have made, I think, valid and legitimate criticisms of urbanism that it focuses too much 
on uh, planning and doesn't talk en- enough about um, the carceral state and um, institutionalization and policing. Sure. Yeah, but sure. there are some urbanists that are re- anti-urbanist skeptics that are like really out there that mm. were saying stuff like public transit and, and and zero emissions transit is a policed space, and maybe to some degree it is, but not nearly as much as private automobiles, not even close. And so sixty-seven percent—that's incredible. Like like I was looking on Twitter, and um, I mean I mean think about it. Like you know Sandra Bland was killed um, by a police officer. That whole thing happened because a police officer pulled her over for a bad lane merge yeah or um you know uh philando castile yeah, was shot yeah. by a cop because what was it he expired tags yeah. taillight was out yeah and i'm asking myself you know i already know that you know parking enforcement for example that's not done by cops maybe in some cities it is but in most cities it's not it's mostly yeah. unarmed people. If you ever looked at a parking enforcement in an officer, sometimes there'll be divisions of the police department. Sometimes they won't be, but yeah. you'll never see a gun on their holster. Yeah, they're not cops. They can't make arrests. They go out there. They give the the vehicle a ticket or the violator a ticket, and they go on their merry way. They don't conduct investigations. They don't look into your background. They don't make arrests or anything. They give you a ticket and go. Yeah, and I'm like, wait. If we can do that, and I mean, they run into motorists all the time. I mean, how many times have you seen? I mean, you yourself drive, I know, so you probably had incidences where you've seen a parking enforcement official. Oh you know, yeah, marking a ticket for your car. You go, hey, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, hey, you, you try to you know, sweet talk them, you know? <laughs> try to sweet talk them, and they most of the time we're going to ignore you. Yeah, they do. Um, and uh, <laughs> I mean, that's like it's so basic. Why does traffic enforcement law, which according to recent studies, a, a really good study out of Michigan Law Review. Um, studied 10-year analysis on traffic uh, enforcement in Florida. That's a gun-heavy state. This is a state where everyone has guns. Um, and found that like violent incidences are like one out of every like over a million traffic stops. It is extremely uncommon, the study concludes, and that like more um, ultra-policing and traffic enforcement is probably not necessary. And so I'm looking at all this data and I'm going, you know, why are we doing this? Why, you know... As an urbanist, as I'm going to focus on removing the police out of public spaces, I'm looking at the data. There's only one way to really do it that gets the largest chunk. It's traffic laws. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I remember I was like, I was on Twitter and there's a young woman, a young black woman um, who is talking about how she was in a collision one time in a car crash. And a police officer came to assist. That's part of the traffic accidents division of the Department of Justice Statistics. Mm-hmm. And she says, you know, I, I called for help from the cops to, to come help me because I was in a car crash. And then a cop threatened to arrest me when he got here because he did a, a check on me on a background check and found out I had a warrant out for skipping high school classes, like, like a truancy warrant. Wow. And I'm like, the woman called the cop for collision assistance and he's about to arrest her when she should really be getting first aid, no background checks and sit on your merry way. It's not talked about enough in urbanist spaces among urbanists and anti-urbanists alike, Mm. how pervasive policing is through the expansion of private cars, right? Policing was always bad. Policing was always horrible, but that being in a car, like there's a reason why, Every black kid has the talk with their parents about police. Right. I've had it. And every time I think about being arrested by a police officer or, 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 or being um, pulled over by a police officer, it's always in the car. It's never yeah. on the street. 
Yeah. It, it's never on my bike. It was one time on my bike um, when I was riding on the sidewalk. That's emblematic of another problem that's kind of related to what we were doing in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. But there's an entire culture of black people in America. And there's, it's black culture to fear the traffic stop. That's, right. that's black culture that you're going to get killed in this traffic stop if you don't do everything this cop says. Because the, the car just gives so much autonomy to police, right? When they pull, they can pull you over for any little thing. It's called a pretext uh, traffic violation or a pretext traffic stop. They can pull you over for any little thing. If a, if a cop wants to run an investigation on you, they can't. Yeah. You just got to be driving. They can accuse you of doing any kind of traffic law violation, and they got you. Right? Yeah. Simple as that. And so I'm going. That doesn't need to be a police function. Traffic right. violations don't need to be a police function. People say, "Oh well," and, and this is what we encountered a lot when we first proposed what we did in Berkeley. Well, traffic stops are dangerous. Um, you know, the police unions from San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Jose came out and denounced us and said, well, traffic stops are super deadly. No, they're oh, not. Interesting. Six, six police officers died last year out of the millions of traffic stops. Six police officers died last year, right? Right. Um, uh, 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 from traffic stops. Right. Six. Like very, very, don't, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ex- comically, no, I won't say comically. Right, Extreme. Yeah. I mean, you know, any, anything higher than zero is sad. Of course, I don't yeah, want yeah, to yeah. see dead police officers. Yeah. But six, yeah, nationwide. This isn't in Berkeley. This isn't in California. Nationwide, six. I think it was like thirty-eight or thirty-six something officers died from being in traffic collisions. Right. Right. Just car crashes. Yeah. And that, that's kind of the big overall point here. That as an urbanist, the danger to people is cars cars are dangerous hmm. and we need to find a way i mean they kill more people than guns do or about as many people as gun homicides do True. right if you factor in air pollution they kill about ninety thousand people in this country right and in like, fact if it, it, yeah yeah if you, 80, every 88 minutes a pedestrian is killed by a car in this country yeah there are so many car collisions car crashes it's one of the leading causes of emergency room visits. It's an extremely deadly form. It's it's up there with gun homicides. We have two problems in this country. We have gun homicides, suicides, and car problems. Yeah. They killed the most people in this country by far. I always like and, to say like Oh, right. and drug overdoses. Huh? Right, right. I always like to say like it's with the car thing. Well, okay, so two things, I guess. Um it's really and and, and it's, it's something that's sort of um especially with the recent, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement uh recently like People are, and I think, of course, it's amazing that it's like having a moment and people are putting a lot of sort of effort and, and it, I don't know, somehow for, you know, in the past few months uh, or the past like five months, you know, it's been something that's really gathered steam, which is, which is amazing and wonderful. But like, it's amazing to me that like the way that cars are dangerous to black and brown people, um, like that just wasn't something that, that, um, I don't know. Honestly, that that wasn't something that I would that I would have like pointed to as like a big problem with cars, you know, with regards right. to like, urbanism, right? But it's because there it's it is. So it's pervasive. so pervasive. Yeah, yeah. It's so it's so pervasive. It's our entire public transportation system. This used to be a lot of our cities were designed for not public transit because a lot of it was privately owned, but it yeah. was designed for low zero emission public transportation or transportation. The automobile industry rose to prominence, gutted a lot of. America's urban streetcars and interurban rail networks, replaced them with buses, defunded the buses, um, and and the fossil fuel industry collaborated. You know, we used to have electric streetcars running up and down the East Bay, Oakland, Berkeley, got rid of them, replaced them with private automobiles, polluting um, with oil that we drill out from Richmond, polluting those communities of color. 
Yeah. And it's such a pervasive issue that a lot of people don't even think about it. It's just a way of life. But of course, like yeah. me, I, I'm I'm traveled, right? I've gone to other countries. This is very abnormal. Only America lives this way, yeah. right? You yeah. go to Europe, you go to Asia, people have bikes, people ride the trains, people ride the buses, they come on time, they're efficient, they're clean, they're dependable. And we don't have that here. And yeah. part of it is public funding. I mean, we live in a country that puts most of our money towards war and corporate tax subsidies. On the other hand, though, part of it is structural. Right. Our cities are not dense enough to sustain a lot of uh, transportation that we'd like to do. I mean, you know, the most used bus line in the entire west of the Mississippi is the 38 Geary in San Francisco. Why does that bus line work? Because the corridor is dense, yeah. right? It's a dense corridor. It works. Yeah. We don't have much of that. A lot of our corridors are suburban. How do you make bus lines work in suburban areas? Yeah, you know, it's hard. We're going to probably talk about this later with zoning and everything. But like Senate Bill 50, that very controversial housing bill, um, it wanted to streamline uh, housing um, that was you know four to five stories that was within a quarter mile and a half mile of public transportation. Yeah, And people think that's just arbitrary. That's not arbitrary. The reason why you do that is because public transportation isn't dependable if you don't live by it, right? Yeah. The, 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 the planning for the longest time has been cars and parking lots, and that doesn't work. You can't build – like that, that's why Oakland, downtown Oakland, for so long struggled to capture business because downtown Oakland, what Oakland planners did with support – what the state did with support of Oakland planners was they built the Groshafter Freeway. They built um, – what is that? Is that 980 or 880? That's 980. They built mm -hmm. 980 mm -hmm. right in the middle of downtown. They built Highway 24, Groshafter Freeway, destroyed – like thousands of homes. Yeah. And then they took the downtown areas, they ripped out the streetcars and they replaced them with parking lots and auto shops. How do you have sustainable communities with parking lots and auto shops? Well, and you don't. And and right? 980, you know, it would basically just like severed uh communities in West Oakland from downtown, right? Like you can't Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a huge red line. Yeah. Um but but sorry, you know, I don't want to get too much onto this just yet. Getting back to the policing thing. <laughs> yeah. That's the systemic problem, right? It's cars. But cars are a blank check for officers to do whatever they want. Hmm. So there is a two-prong approach that we thought of. And it wasn't just me. Um, I just tweeted about this and said, this is crazy. Um, it went viral. Okay. <laughs> there is an organization called uh, Walk Bike Berkeley, which is part of Bike East Bay. These are cyclist advocates organizations. They advocate for safer streets for cyclists, which is what we need. I need to probably get a bike. Um, we need to get people on bikes. And the number one thing keeping people away from bikes, as we've conducted in Oakland surveys, uh, Bike East Bay has conducted these surveys. The number one thing keeping people off of bikes is that cars are so dangerous. Sure. They say it in the survey. Why don't I ride a bike? Cars are too dangerous. They're too deadly. Yeah. Okay. You know, but they're, they're a great advocacy organization. They actually wrote on the same time that I kind of did this this thread to uh, Councilmember Rigel Robinson, who represents Southside and the Telegraph area in Berkeley. Mm -hmm. um, hey, look, what if we just started de-policing traffic enforcement? What if, you know, and traffic enforcement isn't just cars. I mean, it's bikes and it's public transportation too, but it, it's mainly cars because cars are our primary for, for, uh, mode of transportation. They said, hey, why don't we just remove cops out of traffic enforcement and treat it a little bit more like parking enforcement with a lens of equity. Mm -hmm. We're going to, you know, have unarmed people without guns, just pull over cars, give them their ticket and go. No investigations need to be conducted. We don't need to be checking for warrants. Um, 
for civil violations. Why does somebody who runs a, a, a red stop sign need a cop that's going to check their background and check their history and everything else? Right. If you did something on the street and a cop told you to, you know, if you jaywalked on the street, let's pretend like cops actually enforce jaywalking laws, which in some places I'm sure they do. Right. Um, if you jaywalked on the street, the cops are not going to be like, okay, now it's time to run an internal investigation, right? You just, hey, go on the other side of the street. That's what an SFPD officer told me one time. I jaywalked over on Geary Masonic and some, some, um, some, some, you know, POS comes over <laughs> and he's like, hey, you know, cross the street appropriately. I'm like, dude, you know, get out of here. You don't pop. But I mean, I, I got no investigation on <laughs> me. Right. Because it doesn't need to be one, right? It, with cars, it's a blank check and it's disproportionately targets black and brown motorists. This, what this data also showed, um, let me just see if I got it. Uh, like overall, the vast majority of people uh, were far more likely uh, to, to get pulled over uh, were black. It was black yeah. and Latinos. We all know that. That's, that's obvious. That's, right. that's almost common knowledge at this point. But the data shows, you know, um, traffic violations mostly hits black and brown people. Um, of course, because cops are targeting those people for um, ulterior investigations. Yeah. So he said, look, traffic enforcement, why not just move the cop, take the cop out of traffic enforcement? Hey, it's more public sector jobs, right? More SEIU employees, SEIU members. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Have that done by unarmed people. It just, just deliver the ticket and go. Why does this need to be a, a, a police initiative? Mm -hmm. And yeah. he goes, you know, that's cool. That's cool. You know what? I'm going to do it. He just said, let's just do it. He's like, F it. Let's just do it. Goes yeah. out, gets Angie Chan or Chen, um, his assistant uh, staff for uh, Berkeley City Council. He says, hey, write this up for me. Angie writes it up and we're in business, right? We're going to remove police from traffic enforcement. And hopefully it's never been done anywhere in the United States. Some places, some places have removed police out of collision response. Uh -huh. Some rural towns, largely because they just can't afford to have police do it. Okay. But um, we're going to do it for all traffic-related uh, uh, incidences. Um, and you know, we could potentially, if this booms nationwide, which is the intended effect, we could remove sixty-seven percent of all interactions with police and the public um, out of police purview. That's so cool, man. So, and, and I guess it's worth, I also think it's worth mentioning, Rigel is, of course, um, the youngest city council member, right? Um, yeah, he's my age. I think he's like 22, 23. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. You know, the young people sort of like showing up, making change, you know, doing doing new interesting and things. It, and it was sponsored by Ben Bartlett, who represents South Berkeley. Um, no. So, I mean, there, there were tons of people who, I mean, Rigel wrote it, but like they were all on board. Yeah. Um, and it, it's on the books now, uh, right? This passed and it's like becoming law. Whoa, whoa, hold on. Okay. It's not. Not it, yet. Well, th this is kind of how the whole defunding thing went. So people wanted to defund the police. What a lot of people did. So we have like five items. Uh-huh. One, to remove traffic enforcement out of police purview. Another, to remove mental health response teams out of police purview. You know, you see these videos all the time all over the country of police being called in for wellness checks. And they just start shooting people. Right. I used to live in Vallejo with my family. And my, my neighbor had mental health problems and it was getting to the point where someone was like, okay, we need help on this guy. They called Vallejo PD and Vallejo PD comes with guns drawn at the yes. house. And, and, and we're looking out the window, like it's a mental health call, you know, a Tatiana Jefferson in uh, Texas, when right. someone called for a mental health check, her neighbor, like, Hey, just, just check on her. Just make sure she's there. 
Cops come up, look in the window. Um, Jefferson, young woman, black woman, looks up in the window. Who's that? Her, her nephew's playing video games in the um, back room. Bam, 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 shoots her. Yeah. You know, and it's like, why do wellness checks need to be conducted by cops? Yeah. Doesn't need to be. They're not trained to do this, right? You have cops do everything. Do we have firefighters do everything? No, they fight fires. Yeah. Police don't need to be doing every single thing out there because they're not trained to. They're trained to deal with violence and they're going to treat everything with that universal trained experience. Yeah. So it was removing mental health out of police uh, functions. Um, and there was some other stuff too. There was also defunding the police department by 50% immediately. Um, really no like ultra specific cuts, but just like just defund it 50%. Um, the defund got replaced with a goal to defund 50%. Uh-huh. And the traffic enforcement proposal has now, it was passed. And right now it's written as the goal is to create, and by goal I mean like within a year or two, create a um, d- department of transportation. And this department will be focused on equity and will also have our the nation's first ever traffic enforcement division where it will be unarmed office it will be unarmed agents or public workers um conducting traffic law um in the city of berkeley and so a police officer would never be pulling anybody over for a civil violation um such as expired tags or anything that's very obviously non-criminal and incidental such as running a stop sign expired tags uh speeding etc yeah i mean to me and so it's crucial and so sorry not to cut you off but Mm -hmm. People think, well, they just passed it, so it's going to happen. Right. Well, we're, we're on the – it's like it's kind of like being on the escalator now or it's kind of like being a plane flying. Like you, you kind of got the wind behind your back. You're, you're going. But there's a lot of things that can derail this. So the, the police unions came out, the Berkeley Police Union, and police unions from Los Angeles, San Francisco, and San Jose, they all came out and they dunked on us uh-huh. and said, don't do this. No, 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 no. You better not do this because they know we cut down traffic enforcement. That's a lot of police interactions that are down the drain. Um, a lot of people, you know, we got a lot of right wing hate, obviously, from conservative networks. Um, but we also have a lot of good folks on our side. We have lots of scholars and lawyers who are studied in criminology who for a long time been saying police don't need to be doing traffic law. It's so stupid. And uh, we have uh, civil rights groups like uh, the Ella Baker Center and uh, East Bay Community Law Center. We have a lot of groups that are working together on this. And we got to keep pushing. People think that we, we, we pass. It was essentially just a declaration of our intentions to do it. Now's the time to do it. We've got to get the city manager to do it now. So, mm-hmm. you know, th- this, is, this is how it's going. It's not done yet. We're just getting started. So this is okay. So this it's still happening, and we should still pay attention to it, and we should still yes. If the listeners can, they should still uh, voice their support uh, to their elected officials if they can. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's how it is. Cool, um, awesome. Well, okay, cool. I'm glad. I'm, I'm happy to hear that story. I didn't know the whole thing. I'm very very cool to hear it from your perspective. And again, man, I think it's really cool the way your activism like. You, I don't know. You just get out there and you see stuff that that needs needs looking at, and it and it and uh, stuff happens. I think that's kind of like, in a way, that's just kind of magical. You know, like you look at the world and you're like, this needs fixed. Um, and uh, but it's I also think it's cool. like you just do it. That's that's a lot of this is rooted in sort of my urbanist principles, but a, a lot of this is that's part of it. The other part of the Department of Transportation, and this is crucial, we have to address the car problem. We have to get people off of cars. 
cars are the deadliest problem. You can't just say, okay, we're going to replace police with unarmed traffic enforcement. See, this is the problem. The spirit of defunding the police has been a criticism of the perpetual criminalization and institutionalization of the criminal justice system, Mm -hmm. a system and police department that doesn't work to solve underlying problems, but instead perpetually criminalize. There's a reason why we have prisoners right now um, fighting fires with Cal Fire that as soon as they get out of prison, they can't get employed as firefighters. That's a systemic design to keep people in prison, free labor, right? These are the systemic problems that you know, crime, homicides, these are all bad things. I grew up in East Oakland. Nope. I, I hated gunshots. I hated crime. These are really bad ways to live. But it doesn't address the systemic issue by having a cop there. I mean, at most, at best, you just push all the criminal elements out and people who have been left behind on the system. You know, no, no one no one deals in drugs because it's fun. Right. It's not a thing. Right. Right. People do it because they're coming from disinvested communities where that's the only kind of employment they can get that pays a living wage. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, you're not addressing the systemic problems and traffic enforcement is, 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 is much the same. Replacing the police with unarmed civilian, um, enforcement agents is not the sole solution to the problem. Mm-hmm. It's a stopgap measure. It's a it's a de-escalation measure. At least now, everybody will know in Berkeley when you call the police, when you when you get into a car crash, or when you speed, or or when you run a stop sign and you hear a wee woo wee woo, you know you're not going to have a criminal investigation conducted on you. You know you don't have to announce everything before you pull it out. Mm-hmm. You can just treat this person like like you treat a public works employee and and just get this take the ticket and go or get the collision assistance and go why does this require a gun that's the de-escalation aspect yeah there is the real urbanist aspect that is important it's the prevention how do you prevent this from happening we need to have goals in sweden they have something called vision zero and in sweden they said we're going to get traffic fatalities down to zero and they did how did they do it They designed their cities for public transportation, for bikes, for pedestrians. They made public transportation easier for disabled people. They cut down roads and and replaced them with bike and bus only lanes. They expanded public transit. They financed public transit. They imposed gas taxes. They got people on public transit and out of their cars. And what do you know? They have a livable, clean country and no fatalities or deaths and many other uh, european states are following their lead many others have reported zero deaths from traffic violations and traffic laws Mm -hmm. and they're doing it because they're getting rid of cars that's how you have to do it there's no if ands or buts about this you you live in a country full of cars that is designed by the car that lives by the car there's always going to be traffic fatalities there's always going to be collisions and i don't care how many stupid drive like your kids live here signs you put up i don't care how many traffic cops traffic cops are a reactionary measure Mm-hmm. That doesn't slow speeders down. They've been doing. They, they put speed bumps in East Oakland where I used to live as a kid. Mm-hmm. People still speed. You know, m- mothers and their kids are getting killed on Foothill Boulevard and on Bancroft in '98 over in East Oakland. Why? Because you didn't solve the systemic problem. No amount of police stops traffic laws from being broken. Yeah. What stops traffic laws is getting rid of cars. That's what. That's what you. And you can't just get rid of it and say whatever. You know, you're on your own. You have to provide people sustainable alternatives. 
And that's what the sort of urbanist aspect is doing. Just like the solution to gun homicides isn't having police standing on every corner. That might work temporarily as a short-term thing, but it's not a long-term sustainable thing. Police are expensive. They have tons of overtime. They are super hard to fire for misbehavior. The solution is not expanded police. It's getting rid of the police and using their funds to, 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 to tackle the systemic issues. What's the systemic issues to gun homicides? Getting rid of guns, mm. gun control. What's the systemic issue to just general crime, poverty, drugs, and all that stuff? First of all, legalization, taxation, and two, also more importantly, employment. You don't want to have communities disinvested to where the best job on the block is being a drug dealer. Hmm. What's the solution to traffic violations and people dying? I mean, East Oakland, Oakland as a whole, but East Oakland, I grew up there. Those streets are so damn dangerous. Kids die constantly. Old ladies die constantly. You know, disproportionately, most people who die in traffic deaths in Oakland are black and brown people. This is a black and brown issue. The solution to that problem is getting people on sustainable public transit, zero emissions transit, and, 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 and abandoning the car. There are structural ways to solve that, and that's what the new Department of Transportation is going to do. That's cool. So, okay, a couple things, and and this, I was actually going to bring this up earlier, and I and I and I and I got lost. Um, yeah, I, I about the car thing. It, it's always it's always a funny thing to think about. Like we just sort of take it for granted that in America, once you become sixteen years old, uh, with very few exceptions, like just part of being an adult is that you need to learn how to operate a two ton, two hundred horsepower, like giant steel machine. Uh, in close, like in close proximity to other uh, two-ton steel machines that are going, you know, seventy miles an hour on the freeway. Like this is just a thing that everyone has to learn how to do, you know. Um, and we just take that as a given. That's always, I don't know. I, I never really questioned that until later in life. And like, I think when you kind of look at it that way, it's a little weird. Like these are big, dangerous machines, and we're just assuming that everyone should be able to op- operate one of these perfectly. Um, and it's a little, I don't know, it's a little wild. Um, but I, I want to. Uh, uh, so when, when you're talking about sort of urbanism as it, um, I mean, so, so this is kind of like the the I think for and it, this is it's perfect for you, right? But because it's, it's kind of the intersection of of racial justice, economic justice, and urbanism, right? Like how, like what does Oakland look like if if we do everything perfectly? If we somehow um, get all the right people in office and are able to focus on the right decisions and and make things really work. What what sh- what what should we do with East Oakland um, or Oakland at large or the East Bay at large? Um, what should we be doing to um, to solve these issues? You know, to to get away from cars, to solve this sort of opportunity issues you're talking about, like giving people opportunities so their best option isn't something dangerous and illegal. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Can you speak to that, or or what does that what does that mean to you? Um. Well, well, how do we how do we make East Oakland safer from cars? What's the solution? We all know what the solution is. Let's get rid of cars, dude. It, it's what they do every other country in the world. This is so not complicated. One of the things I hate about Americans, and I, Americans really piss me off. <laughs> Americans are honestly some of the dumbest people on the planet. Look at other countries: healthcare, housing. What do they do? They fund it, mm-hmm. and they also make sure it works. It's sustainable. The solution isn't cars. Mm-hmm. You want to solve the problem in East Oakland? You want to solve the homicide problem in East Oakland? The vehicular homicide problem? I can tell you what you do. You cut these streets down from cars. You give more space to pedestrians on sidewalks. You expand BART. East Oakland has two BART stops. Why? Racism, mm-hmm. right? The, when BART was built, it was a white flight public transportation system. It was to get people to the suburbs, to the city. They put only two stations. Add two more, right? Uh, you need to expand um, um, bus rapid transit. 
You need to make sure that the public options are the primary options for transportation in your city, not cars. That's why it works so well. Everywhere else in the world, you know, America contributes the vast majority of car emissions on the planet, overwhelmingly. How do we do that? Because we, 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 we seeded our space, our streets that were really designed for streetcars and pedestrians, we seeded it to cars, we seeded it to the automobile industry, we seeded it to the fossil fuel industry. Mm-hmm. You want to get people off of fossil fuels? It's cars. It's not e-cars, it's not electric cars and all that dumb crap. I mean, that, that's still tons of particle pollution from that anyways. That's just, that's just, you're enriching some people there, but you're not doing much. Part of the solution is also getting cities to start piloting an e-bike program. E-bikes are really good because people ride bikes and like, oh, I'm so tired. I can't do it. E-bikes are so great. You know, you don't get tired because they're charged, right? E-bikes are good. You see a lot of youth in Oakland um, using scooters around Lake Merritt. Yeah. Tons of space that we could take away from cars and give to alternative forms of transit. People go, well, I need my car. The car has complete domain, um, has, has dominion over everything. All of our streets are dominated by cars. Parking, free parking, freeways here is like 10 different freaking freeways crisscrossing Oakland. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the only way you can get around is with a car. Give people alternatives. And you, you do that in two ways. You have public transportation and you also make it sustainable. We need to make sure that our public transportation has taxes. We need to make public transportation free. Right, making bus transportation free is actually something we could easily do. All we have to do is just pay. If every single taxpayer on tax day mm-hmm. paid about twenty or thirty bucks, you could have free transit the entire year, free public, uh, free AC transit the entire year. Mm-hmm. That's a much more equitable solution than having people pay it at the fare box. I mean, I subsidize cars, right? right? My taxes go to pay for street pavings that are ruined by cars. I I didn't ruin Gilman Street in Berkeley. Those are cars doing that, right? I pay for it, though. Do they pay for my bus fare? No. We need to do things like that, and we have to make sure that you take space away from cars so that the train, so that the bus system is competitive. It's not good enough to just fund a public bus. You fund a public bus, we make it free. So what? Because you know, a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of transit activists are tend to be somewhat divided on a lot of things, and mm-hmm. uh, many different ways. There's transit activists that like capital projects, which are like fancy BART trains going everywhere. There's transit activists that are concerned about operations. There's like transit justice people that like only care about free fares. All these people, look, we make the buses free, good. We have public transit, good. But here's the truth. That's not good enough to get people on public transit. That might that, that'll help the lowest income folks. Mm-hmm. And we need to make sure that they're helped. Mm-hmm. But how do you make how do you say, hey, look, you, you, you have to design a system that tells the average resident if you own a car, it's just way too burdensome compared to riding public transit. How do you do that? It doesn't work when my bus in the morning, the 79, is stuck in a crowd of cars on MLK Junior Way. Yeah, sure, it's containing more people than a car would. But it's at the same time, it's it's slow. Yeah. It's stuck behind all these cars. It's not competitive. And at least the people in the cars, they got they can talk to themselves, they got their own space. Right. They're stuck in a public bus. How do you make it competitive? Bus only lanes. When those cars are crammed together on one lane and the bus is zooming by in another lane, people go, that's the competitive system. Right. That works. 
That's dependable. You got to fund public transit. It has to come often. Making buses free is great, but if it comes every 30 minutes, it's not worth it from an opportunity cost perspective as opposed to just getting a car. Right. You've so how to... do you make it competitive? It's got to come every 10 minutes. It's got to come frequently. The key system in Berkeley and Oakland and, Ella, and, and uh, 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 San Leandro and whatever, and Piedmont, all these trains came frequently. They came like every 10, 15 something minutes. We got buses in the East Bay that come every 30, 40. Yeah. It has to be competitive. It has to have its own right of way. You have to have density to support this. Density. Density is so important. I know people don't like the D word, but it's true. You cannot – look, there's a reason why all the buses that are being cut for next year that we're going to fight at East Bay Transit Riders – again, that's not part of East Bay for Everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we don't necessarily agree with everything East Bay for Everyone does. That's, it's just not the, same, uh-huh. it's not the same group. That's East Bay politics. Um, be clear. <laughs> right. No, no. It's not East Bay politics. It's just it, – it's not the same organization. I hear you. And I, I want people you. to make that very clear. It's yeah, a yeah. Transit Riders Union. Yeah. Um, we're not making any endorsements, nothing like that. Yeah. The reason why AC Transit is cutting the li- the lines that they are is because they serve low density areas where the ridership just is not sustainable. Where is the ridership most sustainable? On the one on International Boulevard in East Oakland, on the 51B on College Avenue and University Avenue, on the six and on Telegraph Avenue. These are the densest parts of our cities that have two, three, four story something apartments. In yeah. many cases, high rises in downtown Oakland or maybe Berkeley. Um, that population along transit makes it sustainable and usable. Yeah. You cannot make transit work in suburban areas. We've tried it. It's hard. It, it barely works. It doesn't work at the density that we currently have. That's why the Berkeley Hills lost all of its transit lines. That's why North Berkeley is having a hard time right now. Yeah. Density is very crucial to transit sustainability. I, I, I see people all the time. I'll see, you know, we were making fun of this tweet on Twitter. Some like socialist was in uh, Japan filming what was actually a private monorail system and going, man, how come we don't have sustainable transit like that? I'm like, dude, look around. The, the, the monorail is surrounded by four or five story apartments. Yeah. There's a community around the transit line. That's why it works. There's no community. We are sprawl here. In the Bay Area, we allocate our population to live in sprawl land and fire zones. Berkeley, Oakland, San Francisco, well, really more like San Francisco and Berkeley, don't want to build new housing in their cities. So we allocate it to places like Vacaville and Fairfield, and they burn down. How do you make public transportation sustainable off of that? You don't. So if you want public transportation to be sustainable, the density problem, it's the density. You have to have a community living by transit. If I'm not living within two, three blocks of a bus line, why the hell would I take it? Yeah. Right? I can go get my car. The time it takes me to get to the bus line plus every other externality, such as having to ride a bus, is outweighed by the time it takes to just hop in my car and go where I need to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially if the bus stop I need to go to at the final destination isn't even near where I need to really get to. Or I have to take a transfer or it's blocks away. I hear you, yeah. These okay, are okay. the systemic problems. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 it's good. It's good. This is really good. Okay, so I have I have like another 20 minutes here, um, but I did want to pivot here. So we're talking here about um, uh, transit and how that's really important and your vision for an East Bay uh, where we have that happening. And you're talking about how we need that density, right? We need people to be able to live in two, three, four-story buildings, maybe taller, um, so that we can have enough people living in an area so that we can use those buses so people can walk to work, so people can take transit to get where they need to go, um, to get to that cleaner, uh, you know, and, and I think in a lot of ways, more vibrant future for a lot of reasons. So I want to switch into, into talking about density. Um, 
and and then I, I and to do this, I want to talk about the other thing that you were sort of in the news in, or one other thing that you were in the news in recently. Um, there was a 130 year old house uh, that was there was an effort to landmark it as a um, you know a, a, a landmark or, or a historical of historical import, so that it couldn't be um, so that it couldn't be knocked over, right? And and so that the people who owned it couldn't develop it into something taller and new. Um, and, and this, this sort of gets into something that I think is a little broader and more interesting. Um, but I wanted to ask you, or I wanted to bring this up and talk about this for a sec. Um, because you, you came out and, uh, and, uh, you know, you talked about uh, the importance of density and sort of all the things that you were talking about, uh, uh, right now. Um, and Robert Reich, the former U S secretary of labor under president Clinton, uh, who was also a professor at UC Berkeley, like super well-respected, very far left guy, very smart guy on so many things. Um, I personally have listened to him talk about and learned a lot about him talking about- Yeah, I love Robert. Yeah, right? And, and, so, he, and, and so he came out and he was very interested in having that, uh, that house landmarked. He wanted to keep it there. He wanted to not have the development. Um, so I wanted to, I guess, first of all, I wanted to know, or two things. I wanted to know if you wanted to talk about sort of how that shook out and if there was anything interesting in there. But more broadly, I'm interested in talking about like, why is it that like on the left, um, and, and I'm just going to generalize and clump like most people in the Bay Area. I'm going to clump most of us into the left. I know that's not everybody, but I feel kind of safe sort of pushing us all over there. But like, and we all sort of get it on the national scene. So many issues we understand. And I think even as is, these issues change over time, I think um, folks around here and, and the left generally, uh, we adapt, we evolve. We learn that like, okay, this is a thing that matters now. We didn't know this okay, before. Okay, spit it out, spit it out. Yeah, so, so why is it that we, that, we, that we can't figure out urbanism? Like why is the left so divided on, on, on density? I think that the truth is, is that housing and urbanism and density, you're going to hear a lot of rationalizations, okay? And you don't even want to, don't listen to that. You're going to hear left-wing people say that it's really about their distaste of neoliberal whatever. And you're going to hear, you know, right-wing people say whatever. It's reactionary stuff. You live in a community, you move to these neighborhoods because you like how they currently look and you don't want them to look different. So everyone's always hostile to differences, right? This is not like Europe and Asia and, 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 and much many parts of Africa and South America cities where people accept the fact that they change and grow and look different. A lot of people are reactionary and expected to look the same. People will try to rationalize it however way they can, but that's literally the basis. I mean, especially in the Bay Area, right? Like, don't get me wrong. There are American cities that handle this much better than we do. For example, Minneapolis got rid of single family zoning, yeah, right? right? I mean, yeah. you know, uh, Seattle seems to be doing pretty good on, on transportation and housing. Um, at least when it comes to acknowledging the issues fundamentally. But you're trying to say, and just to like sort of spit it out, how come so many people on the left don't acknowledge that the housing crisis is fundamentally a supply and demand crisis, right? That's a good way to why, put why, it, yeah. why won't people? Why won't people say that there's just a shortage of housing? It's very popular to see left-wing candidates say, well, the real problem with the housing crisis is we have enough housing, but it's just not allocated correctly or whatever, a bunch of stuff that we all know is not true. Um, the reason why is because I think people, again, just have this true love of cities, this true love of neighborhoods, and they see new development, and they don't like how it looks. It's different. It makes people feel weird. And it stretches from the white neighborhoods to the black neighborhoods. Everyone feels this way. That's just kind of 
the the reality of living in an American city. Hell, even European cities are like this, right? Like European cities are old and they don't want to change at all. They build any density; it's always in their suburbs. Um, you know, this is it's it's just kind of natural that people have reflexive like no, don't build anything politics. And you know that's what we saw with Robert Reich. So with Robert Reich, is it Reich or Reich? I actually never really said it. Out loud. I've I've heard it Reich, but I could be wrong. I don't know. Don't quote me. <laughs> I'm going to say Robert because he's my neighbor. Brilliant. Um, uh, you know, Robert. Um, so, so the way this all happened is, is that there was a proposal in North Berkeley. We live in a pretty segregated neighborhood on the very edge of a neighborhood called North Bray, mm-hmm. which is um, a down zone neighborhood. You can't build any apartments in this neighborhood. Uh, it's a it's a very affluent white neighborhood with tons of resources, beautiful streets, got everything going, and it's very secluded. We never get any development proposals here. No one builds housing here, which is why it's so expensive to begin with. You know, I just, come on, people. It's expensive in this neighborhood because nobody builds housing here. It's a, it's, a, it's a localized housing shortage. That's how they redlined. They figured it out. Berkeley was developed by developers who said, how do we keep black people out of this neighborhood? They were talking about this neighborhood. It's, it's in the textbooks. It was uh, Mason McDuffie or McDuffie or whatever. And he, he, he developed this neighborhood in many neighborhoods in Berkeley. And he said, the red lines and the racial covenants that say Negroes and Asiatics can't buy housing here isn't sufficient. How do we keep them out? Hmm. Well, I got an idea. We'll downzone everything so that you can't build an apartment here because the apartments will filter over time and become affordable, which is what's happening in a lot of South Berkeley and Elmwood and elsewhere. How do we solve that problem? We'll just prevent that kind of housing here. It'll only be single family homes only. Mm-hmm. And who can buy a single family home? It'll appreciate in price over time. And guess what? He was right. Berkeley's downzoning program was one of the first in the nation, became a nationwide model of segregation. Yeah. So Donald Trump was endorsing it to, um, on the uh, Republican National Convention. He wrote an op-ed with Ben Carson in the uh, uh, Wall Street Journal saying uh, how single family zoning is important. And he attacked Scott Wiener for uh, trying to upzone uh, cities in California, saying it was going to put in a bunch of low-income housing and stuff. Yeah. So there's a huge culture here in this district in particular of like not accepting any housing. We've built no housing. We've built no affordable housing. Affordable housing, market rate housing, it all abides by the same zoning codes. So something happened. There's a house that's cross that's near that's very close to me uh-huh. that's also very close to Robert, and they want to tear the house down. The, the owner wants to tear it down and build five new homes on site. One of the homes in the complex will be affordable, which means available to a, a family that makes about forty or fifty thousand dollars a year. I forget what the AMI level was, okay. but it was very low income. Yeah. That's what it's classified as, very low income. Mm-hmm. Ten houses, one affordable, and then they're going to pay the rest as a fee, um, which is legal and what the city almost encourages. Um, I'm actually working with the developer to try to see if he can get both low-income homes on site because I think it would be good for integration purposes. I'm someone who lives in this very high-resource neighborhood. Um, I have We are gifted with grocery stores. The black population here is 1%. That's me. Black people have been pushed out of this neighborhood and priced out of this neighborhood for a very long time. So, you know, I would like to see him put, you know, both low income um, homes on site. Uh, but well, hang on, I'm going to pause you. There for that a was a, just real quick. So you're talking about the, so what you're talking about is when a developer builds, a, it's, it's a developer. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. It's okay. They have an option to pay a fee. Um, and that would, I think, go into that that fund we were talking about earlier that you work with as a housing commissioner. But they can pay a fee um, instead of having that subsidized uh, apartment in the building, or they can put the the, the, the subsidized apartment in the building, right? And a lot, oftentimes developers yes. will choose to pay the fee simply because it's easier. But you're saying you're pushing them to have not just one but two uh, subsidized apartments in that building. Is that right? 
So the way affordable housing requirements work is it's called inclusionary zoning, and they have a requirement. You have to build at Berkeley, it's like 20% affordable housing. Mm -hmm. So um, the developer is building 10 homes. That means at least two of those homes have to be affordable. Mm -hmm. But they're only putting one up, and they're putting the rest as a fee, which the city will then use to build subsidized housing elsewhere. Mm -hmm. That might sound crazy, but... Up until recently, it was very uncommon for cities to pass bond measures to finance affordable housing. So generally speaking, most affordable housing funds would come from developers in almost every city in California. Most of it would just come from developers who put money into a housing trust fund or a pot or a general fund. Mm -hmm. So this is the fee. This will, this will go to my housing commission, and then we're going to talk about where the fee goes. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see the fee, to be honest. I, I think that we've already passed a bond measure to finance tons of affordable housing in Berkeley. I want to see that unit put there, especially because this is a segregated neighborhood where they don't build any housing here. So I would like to see low-income people have the chance that I did to live in this high-resource neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and, you know, nimbyism is pervasive. Now, we have a lot of pro-housing neighbors that we worked over the years to get support for housing at the North Berkeley BART station. But when they proposed putting housing up this far in the neighborhood, there was pushback from a lot of residents. Uh, and one of those residents was my neighbor, um, Robert Reich. And... <laughs> You know, uh, they I didn't even look this up, by the way. I didn't even break this story. Some guy who's in my neighborhood who's also pro-housing was shifting through all the opposition emails that were saying that the house needs to be landmarked against this development proposal. It's not a historic house. Well, it is a very old house. It's a very old house. Mm -hmm. But it's there's nothing like it's been altered and, and, and changed so many times. There's nothing historical about it. I never even noticed the house. There's a lot of beautiful houses here. I never noticed that one. Yeah. Um, Robert's email popped up and his wife and they were basically complaining about how, you know, it would be out of scale with the neighborhood and that the apartment, um, that the, that the, that the 10 homes they wanted to build here was too big and that they cared about these oak trees and all this like really typical NIMBY stuff. And I'm someone who loves trees, sure, but yeah. like the, 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 the landmarking application that they were writing in support of to stop the project specifically cited the apartment complex I live in as blight. It says <laughs> this apartment complex blights the streetscape uh, despite being built like 50 years ago back when it was allowed. Uh -huh. And I was like, okay, well, that's weird. So I'm, I want more housing in our neighborhood so that we can bring the, the, the housing costs down. Building housing is important. There's a lot of people who want to live in this neighborhood. This is one of the most desired neighborhoods in the entire um, world. And we keep people out by having a small supply of housing so that everyone has to bid and compete for a limited number of homes. Yeah. So I was, I, I supported the housing here. Um, this is, this is a very affluent neighborhood. More than 50% of the population has master degrees or higher. Um, yeah. you know, again, 1% black, uh, the average incomes are well over a hundred thousand dollars a year. So I wanted this housing. Um, and someone found out about Robert Reich's email and said, look, dude, you're, you're kind of a liberal hypocrite, right? You go out there and you talk about how we need e equality and higher minimum wage and health care and housing subsidies and, and all this typical liberal stuff. But when it comes to building housing in your own backyard, you're out here complaining about shade and all this NIMBY stuff about bringing in, you know, uh, uh, too big of housing into the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It's like we live in this neighborhood. And, and this is Robert. Robert is kind of the epitome of. And I, by the way, I love Robert. I'm not hating on him. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I was going to jump. I, in I mean, this as a very. Yeah. I mean, this as a very gentle critique. I, people were very vicious towards him. I didn't like that. Yeah. I thought I said, calm down, you know, well, be nice Twitter, to the guy. Right? Yeah. I swear. People are vicious on here. Yeah. But, you know, I was like, look, it's nothing personal, but he's kind of the he's kind of the epitome of a lot of the people in this neighborhood. I live in a neighborhood where everyone lives in 
$1 million, $2 million houses with Black Lives Matter signs on their front yards. But as soon as you would change housing policy to build housing in this neighborhood, that would drop prices low enough for people to actually afford to live in this neighborhood who are black. Yeah. You know, oh, wait, no, that's a neighborhood character. Neighborhood character. We got to preserve that. Yeah. But here's my meaningless Black Lives Matter sign in a neighborhood with no black people. I think, right? Like that's, yeah. I think, you know, that's kind of, that, that's the paradox. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, like, I, I think, um, it's and, and and I don't. You're right. I don't mean to pick on Robert Reich. I think he's really smart. Obviously, everything he does or everything that he's known for, I think is you know obviously good stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it does. Right. It gets to this sort of like emotional gut level thing. And you do. You have this in Oakland too. You have white neighborhoods where you have more Black Lives Matter signs on lawns than you have Black and Brown neighbors, and. It's, it's just the sort of like emotional gut level responses to someone coming in and saying, hey, we're going to change this part of your neighborhood. And that really elicits a really strong immediate response that um, it just it's just really easy to turn that into political action when it's like, well, the people who live in this neighborhood who elect, you know, your city council or whatever the structure is, right? Like those are the voters. And if they get mad about something, um, you know, the elected officials are going to respond, right? So it's, it's, they have, we have the people who are in a position to have that sort of gut emotional response, I think, are just sort of politically empowered in the system that we have right now. Um, and that's just a tough nut to crack, you know, like I, I would call these folks like neighborhood defenders, right? Like I think that's sort of a more charitable term, but, you know, NIMBYs are, um, we know who we're talking about, right? Um, uh, but yeah, like I, I don't know, like have you, like, what do we do moving forward? Like, how do you how do you approach people and let them know that, like, you know, the the, the community that we have, the neighborhood that we have, is going to be better with more new new people on it, with more with more homes, as opposed to uh, let's keep it the same and let's like freeze it in amber. You know what I mean? Like, it's a tough emotional every, every, argument. Every neighborhood is different. You know, it, yeah. the arguments that we use in North Berkeley don't work in like West Oakland, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the truth is, is that, you know, in North Berkeley, the reason why we amassed such a powerful strength that in the western part of the neighborhood, uh, we got a pro-housing candidate elected to office um, as our council member, Rashi Kasrawani. Mm -hmm. The reason why we did that is because we mobilized and we spoke to people like human beings. And I think this is something if I, if I could give a criticism to urbanists and Yimbis and whatnot. Yeah. Here's the problem. You know, the viciousness and the anger might work for similarly crazy people on Twitter who are nuts. But in real life, tone it down. These are your neighbors. These are your friends. This is a lot of people who just have a, a little blind spot. Yeah, yeah. And oftentimes you talk to them, you sit them down. I remember I sat down with a homeowner who was mad that we wanted to replace the parking lot with housing at North Berkeley BART. Yeah. And she goes, look, I won't be able to drive here. She's She, she considers herself a climate activist. And I'm like, ma'am, the climate research says infill housing, getting rid of parking lots, and replacing it with high density housing, eliminating cars, and replacing it with public transit mm -hmm. is the way to reduce emissions. Mm -hmm. Like, here's the research. Like, ma'am, we could have a healthy city and you wouldn't have to drive everywhere if we had density, if we had grocery stores. We used to live this way, right? The, the whole big box grocery stores where there's like a big parking lot and a big store and everyone has to drive to it. Yeah. It didn't used to be that way. Yeah. You can see all over Berkeley and Oakland places where there used to be small local grocery stores you could just walk to. Yeah. You didn't have to drive. Right. There are ways to solve this problem. And she goes, you know, my kids can't afford to live in this neighborhood anymore. And I'm like, ma'am, the reason why is because we haven't built housing here for over 50, 70 something years. Right. If you build housing here for population growth, your kids can't live in this neighborhood. And it doesn't mean super mega high rises. Right. It doesn't have to mean that. Right. You know, 
subdivisions. You can add ADUs to your backyard. You can add an extra a, a apartment on your house. Yeah. This can we can we can double the density and we can double the population in North Berkeley without changing a single aesthetic thing. Yeah. Though I would like to see more high rises. I'm not going to lie. Of housing, we have to be energy efficient here. Yeah. I'm not talking high rises as in like 20, 40 something story buildings. We're talking like five, six story apartment buildings. The East Bay used to build like this until it was banned in 1972. Right or 1973. This is not like an, an old thing. We, we find lots of old apartments that are dense like this. Mm-hmm. And I sit them down and I'm go like, you want your kids to live in this neighborhood? You want to live in a neighborhood where you're you're a senior and you have arthritis problems? You have, you know, you're, you're getting you're you're blind, and you can't drive and you're worried about that. Fight for public transportation. Fight for more housing in the neighborhood yeah. built densely on corridors, and you can live fine. They don't have a problem with it in Europe. They live great in Mexico City. They live awesome in uh, Tokyo. We don't, you don't have to live like this where you're stuck in your house and you're trapped. And I talk to them and they go, you're right. And they join us and they support housing. It's, it's kind of those basic conversations. Yeah. So you can't always be toxic. I mean, it's fun to be toxic and mean on Twitter, but is it, 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 it doesn't is always it? yield the best result. Yeah. I mean, it is fun to an extent. It is fun to an extent. But, uh, but my tone is very different. When I'm talking to idiots who live halfway across the country that don't know what the hell they're talking about, uh-huh. my tone is completely different than when I'm talking to my neighbor down the street about why we should support housing in my neighborhood. Yeah. All activism yeah. starts locally. All activism starts, you know, right outside your door. Yeah. Daryl, man, I got to tell you, I can't think of a better way to wrap this one up. Um, that was awesome. Thank you for talking, man. Um, I think we should. We're gonna do this regularly. Let's do it again. Yeah. We're gonna, we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna talk so much because you know we we didn't get into enough of it. There was so much to talk about. I know. I have I have so many uh, things on my little checklist that we didn't get to, but we'll do it. We'll do it again soon, man. Uh, national politics will still be there for us. The housing crisis isn't going away anytime soon. We'll talk more soon. Unfortunately, no. It's going to get worse, actually. Yeah, look well. Foreclosure crisis is incoming. That's and the tenant protections. The tenant protections from Gavin Newsom have been god awful. Yeah. He did nothing. He sat there. He let landlords write um, the big uh, eviction protection bill. And don't worry, we live in Berkeley, Oakland, and San Francisco, where we have pretty good eviction protection because most of our debt that we assume from um, being unemployed thanks to the coronavirus, much of our debt is being uh, reclassified from uh, rental debt into consumer debt. So you can't actually be evicted for that. But have pity for the people who don't live in those three big cities. right? This is why we have to build housing in these three big cities because if you're not wealthy enough to live in Berkeley, you're not protected by this progressive political establishment that can pass these good tenant protections. And unfortunately, the state legislator is just trash. Uh, I think it was Portantino uh, who's who's a who's a notorious killer of housing bills helped kill uh, the tra- uh, the tenant bill too or the eviction bill and now the eviction bill that's coming out I mean it's not it's not the worst thing in the world but it, it's leaving it's going to let a lot of tenants slip through the cracks yeah we're going to see a lot of homelessness increase soon not just because of the evictions coming but also because of the uh, uh, climate change crisis join your local tenants union if you don't have a tenants union um, make a tenants union organize with your tenants. Uh, uh, talk to people, look online for tenant information, join East Bay for everyone and uh, help us fight for more housing so that we didn't have to compete for such a small number of homes to begin with. Um, Join East Bay Transit Riders. If you ride AC Transit and you're sick of your bus leaving you behind, or if you don't ride AC Transit and you would like to, and it just doesn't come frequently enough for you, join your local grassroots organizations. That's beautiful. All right, man. We'll talk all about that stuff next time. Uh, Thank you again for making the time, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. See ya.
Thank you so much for listening to East Bay for Everyone Radio. Uh, East Bay for Everyone and this podcast are 100% volunteer run. If you'd like to find out more about us, please go to eastbayforeveryone.org. That's eastbayforeveryone.org, all spelled out. If you found this episode interesting, uh, and, if, and if you'd like, please leave us a good review and uh, maybe share it with your friends who also might find it interesting. That's how we how we spread the word about what we're doing, uh, and it would be greatly appreciated. Um, yeah, again, hope you enjoyed the interview with Daryl, uh, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.